will be going through every verse of Scripture, and I don't think you want to stand up through the whole Bible study, um, but uh, we're going to go through the Word of God. Now, this uh, study, Ephesians chapter 6, could be divided into two separate categories. One of them, one of them is about uh, spiritual harmony in the life of a Christian or Christian harmony. That's the first part of the uh, reading through verse number 9. And then verses 10 through 24 uh, could be described um, as spiritual warfare. talks about spiritual warfare uh, that we are engaged in as Christians. So uh, first of all, we're going to look at this in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. It, uh, it talks about four groups that the Apostle Paul admonishes to emphasize and focus on Christian harmony. These four groups that he focuses on, number one, is Christian children, verses 1 through 3. He talks about what Christian children ought to do to uh, encourage harmony. Second group is uh, Christian fathers. The Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, he talks how Christian fathers can promote harmony in the family and in the church. Next is Christian servants. Christian servants, people that are employees, if you would. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And then Christian masters, which are employers. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. So we'll look real quickly um, at these groups that he admonishes uh, to maintain Christian harmony. Now, first of all, understand that uh, uh, chapter 5 ended up with him talking about harmony in the home and how a husband and a wife are to treat one another and respect one another and love one another to encourage and ensure harmony in the home. But uh, he goes beyond the home or starts in the home and goes beyond that. But first of all, he talks about Christian children. Now, here's one thing to understand, that the Apostle Paul wrote this as a letter to the church in Ephesus. And when this letter arrived, the intention was that uh, the, the shepherd or the angel, uh, the, the uh, overseer of that church, would stand before the congregation and read this letter to the church. So the Apostle Paul is directly admonishing people. He's not necessarily just telling them to admonish the children, but he admonishes them directly. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Three, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. So in this section, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the children that were in the assembly that night when the letter was read. And uh, he gave them four reasons here in this passage why that they should obey their parents. And we're going to look at these four reasons that he gives. Number one, and this is the first blank on your sheet. Number one, they should obey because they are Christians. It says, obey your parents in the Lord. If you are a Christian, children, you should obey. And the second reason that he gives is because obedience is right, for this is right. Children, obey your parents because you're in the Lord and because this is right. Now, the argument, first of all, because they're children, 
It's an application of the theme that goes through the entire section of this passage of Scripture that we submit ourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. It's not because they're stronger than you or your parents are bigger than you, but because you're in the Lord and you're in the fear of the Lord. And uh, a Christian uh, ought to, having Christ in our lives, ought to make us better, not worse. And our children should be better because they're Christians. It says, because obedience is right. Um, there is an order in nature, and it was parents that brought the child into the world, and as a result, they've been here longer, they have more knowledge and wisdom than the child, so it's right that the child should obey the parents, right? But he heard that before, I brought you in this world, I can take you out. Amen. They, so it's right, it's in right order that uh, children would obey their parents. Uh, also, which is the first commandment with promise, honor thy father and mother. Children, Christian children should obey because obedience is commanded in the word of God. It's clearly and directly commanded in the word of God. It was the fifth commandment right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And this applies to a New Testament believer as well. The Bible says, honor thy father and mother. Some people think that means you just obey your father and mother. Well, that's a part of it. To honor our parents means much more than simply to obey them. It means to show respect, to show love, to care for them as long as they need us, and to try to bring them honor by the way that we live our lives. This is what it means to honor our mother and father. Not just to obey them, but to respect them, love them, care for them as they need it, and also live our lives in a way that brings honor to them. Amen? That's how we give honor to God, by living our lives in such a way that it brings honor to Him. Also in this passage of Scripture, we're instructed, uh, the children are instructed to obey their parents, finally because obedience brings blessing. Can I get an amen? The Word of God is full of this argument that obedience provides blessing. The fifth commandment was the first commandment that had a promise attached to it. And the promise is that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth, that your days may be long upon the earth. And we know that this promise originally applied to the Jews. However, Paul was applying it to believers today. It still applies today. Now, this doesn't mean that every person who dies young was dishonoring their parents. That's not what it means. Um, but it is stating a principle, and that is when children obey their parents in the Lord, they will escape a lot of sin and danger and avoid the things that could threaten or shorten their life. Right? <coughs> if children don't listen to their parents, they put themselves in harm's way. A lot of the instruction of parents is to protect them. So the child must learn to obey his or her father and mother very early, not only because they are his parents, but because God has commanded it to be. So really, disobedience to parents is rebellion against God. Dishonoring parents is rebellion against God. Now here's the problem. Children by nature, are selfish, right? Children by nature are selfish, and so they have to be trained. 
and through the power of the Holy Ghost, a child can learn to obey his parents and give glory to God. I've heard this before. People say of their child, boy, he needs the Holy Ghost. And they're not kidding. They're serious. Man, that child would really be benefited by the Spirit of God. But first of all, the Apostle Paul says, in order for there to be harmony in the home, first of all, parents, our children, obey your parents in the Lord. Then in verse 4, as we continue reading through this chapter, he admonishes fathers in their position of authority. It says, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a pretty short verse, but there's a lot of meaning in that verse. There's several things that he is instructing us as fathers to do. First thing is that he must not provoke the children. He must not provoke the children. So uh, let me, let me uh, come back to that. But first of all, under where it says Christian fathers, that uh, we're not to provoke our children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, to continue on the point that I was making earlier, if children are left to themselves, they will become rebels. So it's necessary for parents to train the children. Even in the Word of God, there are several examples, several examples of children that were not brought up the right way and they brought dishonor to their family in the future. Uh, David, King David, pampered his son Absalom and set him a bad example, and the results were tragic. Anybody heard that story before? Eli failed to discipline his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they brought disgrace to his name and defeat to the whole nation of Israel because he didn't discipline his kid. Everybody say, wow. Isaac pampered Esau while the wife showed favoritism to Jacob, and the result was a divided home. Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph, and so God providentially rescued that boy from the spoiling of his dad and made a man out of him in Egypt. God said, I can't do anything with this boy if he stays under his, the spoiling of his father. But if I can get him out and make a man out of him, then I can do something great through him. Amen. So Paul tells us that a father has some responsibilities. Number one, he must not provoke them. Now during the time that this, these verses of Scripture were written, the father had supreme and absolute authority over the family. He could do whatever he wanted. It was a sad, sad, kind of a sad time uh, in the history of the world in terms of how much right was given to might. And uh, so fathers could basically do whatever they wanted to. And uh, Paul was telling the parents, don't use your authority to abuse the child, but to encourage and build up the child. And uh, in the book of Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger or else they'll be discouraged. Everybody say discouraged. So the opposite of provoke is to encourage. Provoke produces discouragement. The opposite of provoke is to encourage. Let me tell you, this is the red letter portion of this part of the lesson. How do I provoke my children? Fathers, how do you provoke your children? 
Fathers provoke their children and discourage them by saying one thing and doing another. That discourages them. By always blaming and never praising. By being inconsistent or unfair in discipline. One thing one day, another thing day the next. By showing favoritism in the home. That will provoke a child. By making promises and not keeping them. That will provoke a child. By making light of the problems that are very important to the child. That will provoke or discourage the child. Christian parents need the Holy Ghost as well so that they can be sensitive to the needs and the problems of their children and not discourage them, but rather encourage them. That's all in that verse there. Don't provoke them. The next thing is that fathers must nurture their children. The verb uh, that's translated nourisheth or nurture is the same word that means to bring them up. So while in the same way that a Christian husband is to nurture or nourish his wife and his children by sharing love and encouragement in the Lord, it is not enough just to take care of their physical needs by providing food and shelter and clothing, but he almost also must nurture them emotionally and spiritually. Fathers, we are commanded that in order to provide and produce harmony in the home, we can't just bring home the bacon but we also got to bring home some love and some nurture to the family. Amen? Now, here's one you may not have seen in the verse. He must discipline them. Like, where is that in verse 4? It's in there. The word nurture that we just talked about, the word bring them up in the nurture of the Lord. The word nurture has the meaning of learning through discipline. In fact, this same word that's translated nurture here appears in Hebrews chapter 12, but it's not translated nurture there. It's translated chastening. Anybody heard of the word chastening before? So the same word that here is translated nurture in Hebrews 12 is translated by the word chastening. And uh, chastening means discipline. Now, there are modern uh, psychologists who oppose the idea of discipline, old-fashioned discipline in the home. And even educators and teachers follow their philosophy. But discipline is the basic principle of life, and it is evidence of love. The Bible says in Hebrews twelve six, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Because chastening is not hurting or just striking or just causing pain, but it is shaping and directing through discipline. Amen. If if a parent really, truly loves a child, he is going. He and she are going to want the best for that child. And the way they can have the best is by having their life directed, by having values put into them. Now, we must discipline our children in the right manner. We must discipline them in love instead of anger. That's very important. Sometimes it's easy to get out of control when you're angry. And so you should not discipline or chasten a child in anger. But you do it in love. Because if you do it in anger, you may injure the body of that child. And even more importantly, you may injure the spirit of that child. Maybe even both. Also, it's important that discipline be fair and consistent. Fair and consistent. And consistent, loving discipline 
gives assurance, comfort, and peace to the child. The next thing that uh, a father is instructed to do in this passage is to instruct and encourage the child. To instruct and encourage. That's what the word admonition means. Nurture connotes discipline. Admonition means to instruct and encourage. The father and mother use not only actions to raise the child, but also good teaching and words. Our instruction must always be tied to the word of God, not just our own ideas. Amen? So Christian fathers are instructed not to provoke, to nurture, to discipline, to instruct, and encourage. Everyone say encourage. All right, verse number five, we begin talking about Christian servants, what their responsibility is to maintain harmony. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. That means you're in the physical world, in, in, in the uh, physical realm. With fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Notice it says, have respect to your master or your employer as if it was unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Anybody know what that means? Anybody? Give me give me an idea what you think that means. Exactly. Like you're gonna do your best when the boss is looking and you have a lookout there and hey, tell us when tell us when the boss comes. We're back here eating donuts, kicking back and talking about the speeches on the at the conventions, but whenever the boss comes, man, we'll get up, we'll just work hard, put a little water, make it come down like we've been sweating and not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord. There's that theme again, as to the Lord. When we go to work, we may think, well, we're working for this company or we're working for this individual. As a true Christian, we should believe that everything that we're doing is service to the Lord and we ought to do our best and do it as unto the Lord. Anybody ever heard that before? It's what the Bible teaches. Amen. As to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall be received of the Lord, whether he be bond. The same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. If he does a good thing, he's going to receive that from the Lord. Whatever you do, it's coming back to you. Amen? You take advantage of your boss, somebody's going to take advantage of you. If you do a good job for your boss, somebody's going to do a good job for you. Amen? So here's the point. Question, why be obedient servants? Why should we be obedient servants? Now, first of all, the word servant at this time meant slave because there were actual indentured servants or slaves during this time. And uh, thank the Lord we don't have slavery in America today. However, these principles apply to the Christian employee today, a Christian employee that works for someone. So Paul, first of all, admonished or taught, instructed, and encouraged the servants to be obedient. The first reason why they should be obedient servant is that they were really serving Christ. True, they were working for their masters according to the flesh, the verse says, but their true master was in heaven. 
And the best way, let me tell you this right now, the best way to be a witness on the job is to do a good day's work. Amen. Some people want to share their faith on the job. The boss and the other employees are like, I don't know if I want anything to do with that. They don't know how to work. They don't show up on time. They're always loafing, always complaining. Come on now. The best way to be a witness on the job is do a good day's work, have a good attitude. The Christian worker should avoid eye service, working only when the boss is watching or working extra hard when he's watching to give the impression that you're doing a very good job. So the first reason is, you're really serving Christ. The second reason why to be an obedient servant is that doing a good job is the will of God. Amen? And it says a Christian can perform perform any good work as a ministry to Christ. Anything that you do a good job on, you can do it unto the Lord. That's why at Life Church we want to do everything our very best because we're doing it unto the Lord. Amen? We're giving glory to God. The, the, the phrase singleness of heart and doing the will of God from the heart both indicate the importance of the right heart or the right attitude on the job. Singleness of heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. The right emotional approach and the right attitude on the job. This is telling us as Christians that we should be the best employees in our workplace. To say that again, as Christians, you should be the best employee, employee of the month, the one the boss can always count on, not because you're kissing up or working hard when they come around, but because when you get to work, you're like, today I'm working for God today. I may be just screwing a bolt onto a, uh, a piece of equipment on an assembly line. I may be cleaning a house or I may be going in and uh, uh, doing sales calls, but what I'm really doing is I'm working for the Lord today, so I'm going to do my very, very, very best. Amen? This is the will of God, and we every good work is done for the Lord. The third argument that Paul has of why we should be obedient servants or workers or employees is that we will be rewarded by the Lord. Verse 8 says we're going to be rewarded by the Lord. Any good work you do, it's coming back to you. I just made a rhyme. Any good work you do, it's coming back to you. We are to serve Christ and not men. And we receive our rewards from Christ, not from men. Amen? I believe this. I believe this. I believe this. I want to put it in our young people and our children. You be the best worker on the workplace. You're not the one cutting corners, trying to get off early, trying to always miss work. You're, come on, you're the ones that's the best employees there. And you give glory to God and God rewards you. I believe that's what the Bible's saying right here. The Apostle Paul is making it plain, amen? And our reward comes from the Lord. And then the Apostle Paul also admonishes not just Christian servants, but Christian masters or bosses in our day, employers. In our day, it says, verse 9, And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, 
neither is there respect of persons with him. So the point is, not only is the servant serving God, but the master is also serving the Lord. And as an employer or a boss, you are also serving God and trying to please him. Amen? So the when you got a Christian employer and a Christian employee, <clears throat> they're able to work together for the glory of God. So what are the responsibilities of a Christian employer or a Christian master uh, to his workers? The first thing is, he must seek their welfare. It says, do the same things unto them. In other words, what I've just instructed them to do for you, I want you to do for them as well. They're looking out for doing their very best for you. I want you to look out for doing your very best for them. If the employee expects the workers to do their best, he must do the best. The master or employer must serve the Lord from his heart. If he expects his servants to do the same, he can't exploit them. Amen. It's sad if an employee has to say, well, my boss is supposed to be a Christian. Uh, But you would never know it. So first of all, uh, a Christian master must seek the welfare of the employee. Secondly, he must not threaten, but it means forbearing threatening, uh, refraining from threatening. Now, of course, in this day of... uh, Slave and master in this New Testament era, the master could threaten to even physically harm or even kill the slave, although they didn't do it very often because it cost them money. It was a a financial um, uh, piece of property back in that era. But in terms of employee-employer, Paul is suggesting that the Christian master has a better way to encourage obedience and service than threats of punishment. Say, well, I'm going to do this to you if you do that. The negative power of fear, a lot of times, doesn't create an employee that does more, but rather one that does less. And uh, this kind of motivation can't be used long term. So he's saying forbearing, threatening. Next, Christian masters or employers must be submitted to the Lord. Verse 9 says, your master also is in heaven. Masters should treat their servants as their masters in heaven would have them do. In other words, your boss is God. And so however your boss would want these people treated, that's how you should treat them. Amen? Because you're in a line of authority. You have a master in heaven. And so you may be the big boss, but you have to be in submission to the Lord. Because somebody who's submitted to God has no problem submitting to those over him. Amen? And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 21, that the way to be a ruler is first to be a servant. That's what he said. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be a ruler, if you want to be a boss, you first have to be a great servant. Anybody knows this? You don't just come into a company and start being the boss, right? You become the boss because you prove yourself as a great, excellent servant. If you're an excellent servant, then a little bit later, you're going to start to go up until you have authority over other individuals. Amen? So the, a person who is not under authority has no right to exercise authority. 
And this explains why many great men of the Bible that we read about and we talk about and celebrate were actually servants before they became rulers. Amen? Joseph was a servant in prison. Then he became a ruler. Moses, amen, was a servant first. Then he became a ruler. Joshua, David, Nehemiah, just a few examples. We could go on and on. These great men of the Bible were servants before they were leaders. And anybody that's going to be used of God has to understand authority. Even after a man becomes a leader, he must still lead by serving. So he must be submitted to the Lord. And finally, a Christian master or boss or employer must not play favorites. Why? There is neither is there respect of persons with him. God's in heaven. He doesn't respect person, one above the other. And so you as a boss should not pray, play favorites either. A Christian employee should not an employer should not play favorites with those under his authority. Amen. One of the fastest ways for a leader to divide his followers and lose their confidence is to play favorites and show partiality. Amen. So this is the completion, verses 1 through 9. It teaches us how to walk in harmony as in chapter 5 as husbands and wives. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, as children. And in the next verse, as fathers. And then the next few verses, as servants. And finally, as masters or employers, how we can walk in harmony with one another. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit and are joyful, thankful, and submissive, then we can enjoy uh, harmony in the relationships of life as we work and live with and raise and our children of other Christians. Amen. Everybody said, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's stand and stretch for a minute. Uh, Pastor, let me sit on my seat again. I'll reach down and touch him. Amen. I'm having you stretch because we're getting ready to go into battle now, all right? We're getting ready to go into warfare in the Word of God. God bless you. You can be seated. Praise God. Verse number 10 of chapter 6. We switch from focusing on how to have harmony in the family of God, and he wraps up the book of Ephesians, which talks about our riches in Christ, making us aware again that we are engaged in spiritual warfare against spiritual forces. We're not fighting against human beings. We're not to fight with one another. Amen? But we are to engage in spiritual warfare against spiritual wickedness. So let's see what it has to say. First of all, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, he begins to define the enemy. But before we read that, let me just declare that sooner or later, as you are a growing Christian, as you are a... Uh, baby Christian that begins to grow, you begin to realize the Christian life is not a cakewalk. You know what? This ain't a bed of roses. This is a battleground, not a playground. This is a battlefield. Amen? And, and, and you got to realize at one point or another that we face an enemy who is much stronger than we are, apart from the Lord on our side. 
that if we try to make it without prayer, if we try to make it without the Word of God, we try to make it with our intellect or who we think that we are, what we call ourselves, the Pentecostal apostolic, man, he's going to beat us all up. Amen? Now, the Apostle Paul uses here a military illustration, the common, uh, common in that day. And military illustrations of the kingdom of God were very popular with Paul. He used them in 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 2 and chapter 4. So the Apostle Paul used military illustrations to describe our engagement with our enemy, Satan, in battle. So earlier on in Ephesians, we studied that the Christian faces three enemies. Anybody remember the three enemies that we talked about that as Christians we are in battle with? Anybody remember one of them? The devil. The devil's one of them. He's right. Anybody know what another one is? What's that? The world. Amen. The world or the earth. Yourself or uh, more specifically in, in Ephesians 2, it says our flesh. And it is ourself, our own carnal nature, our desires of our flesh. So in order to be a Christian, you've got to fight a battle on three fronts. You're fighting against Satan, you're fighting against the influence of the world, and you're fighting against the influence of your flesh. Now, what do you, they say, what do you mean the world? Fighting against the world, what do you mean? The world refers to the system around us that is opposed to God. The mentality and the world system that is opposed to God, right? And those people that are saying that there shouldn't be prayer in school, that, uh, that, uh, um, that, uh, People that believe in creation are Crete, Neanderthal, have no concept of education. This is a world system, and it's opposed to God. And it caters to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And Hollywood, Madison Avenue, all of these things that are from the world that war against us. The flesh, you say, what's the flesh? The flesh is our old nature the old nature that we inherited from Adam. And it's a nature that's opposed to God and can do nothing spiritual to please God, our old fleshly human nature. So how does this happen? Amen. What happens is the world and the flesh, the enemy, our enemy, the devil, uses to try to get us to be defeated and to destroy our, our faith. So Paul is discussing four topics so that his readers can understand and apply the truths about spiritual warfare and walk in victory. The first one he talks about is, let's define the enemy. Let's make sure we know who it is that we are fighting. Verse number 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that she may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Unless we know who the enemy is, where he is, and what he can do, we're going to have a hard time defeating him. It'd be like, uh, I think it was Don, Qu Don Quixote was a story I studied in high school. Anybody remember that? He had all his uniform on. He was out there fighting a windmill. 
thought he was fighting a, a, a warrior. So the first thing, you got to know who the enemy is, where he is, and what he can do. And so in Ephesians 6 and also throughout the rest of the Bible, we get instruction about the enemy. So there's no reason for us to be caught off guard. So first of all, with the enemy, there is the leader who is the devil. Devil actually means accuser. That's what devil means. Because he accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. We see that in Revelations chapter 12. What's another word for for devil? Satan. Satan means adversary. Because Satan is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. He's also referred to as the tempter, as a murderer, as a liar. He's compared to a lion, compared to a serpent, compared to an angel of light. And he's also referred to as the God of this age. This is the enemy we're fighting against. Satan, the devil, the accuser, the thief, the liar, the murderer. And also in Isaiah, we understand that he was at one point called Lucifer, the son of the morning. But Lucifer was cast down because of his pride and because of his desire to occupy God's throne to ascend up, to exalt himself. Here's one thing to understand about Satan. Makes him different than God. God is omniscient. That means God knows everything, even your thought. God is omnipotent. What does that mean? That means he has all power. There is no power that anyone has unless God gives them that power. And God is also omnipresent. Anybody know what that means? That means God's everywhere. You cannot escape from Him. Because there is no place you can go that He is not. So He knows everything that's happening everywhere and has all power. I say, thank you, Jesus. That's my God. Amen. But the devil is different than God because although he is powerful, he's not all-powerful. Although he's very knowledgeable, he's not all-knowing. And although he can wreck a lot of havoc, he cannot be present everywhere at the same time. So you ask this question. If the devil is not omnipresent, cannot be present everywhere, how does he make such a mess everywhere? How does he accomplish so much in many different parts of the world? And the answer is he has organized helpers, Satan's helpers. The devil is one, but he has many helpers. Oftentimes we refer to the work of the devil. It is the work of the devil, but it's probably through one of his servants or his minions. Now, Satan's helpers, who are they? The Bible says he refers to them as principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Now this is suggesting that there is for sure a definite army of demonic creatures that assist Satan in his attacks against the church and against believers. 
And uh, in another place, the apostle John hinted that one third of heaven's angels fell with Satan when they rebelled against God and became these rulers of darkness, principalities, and power. So two thirds stayed with God. One third went with Lucifer and became this spiritual army in a negative sense. Daniel wrote against wrote that Satan's angels struggled against God's angels uh, for control of what happens around the world. So a spiritual battle is going on in the world and in the sphere of the heavenlies or in the spirit realm. And you and I, as human beings, become a part of this invisible spiritual battle for control. Amen? You and I engage in this battle. And it's important for us to understand that our battle is not against human beings. It's against spiritual powers and spiritual wickedness. You cannot fight this battle by opposing people. Right? You cannot fight this battle by resisting individual. You fight this battle through spiritual warfare, through prayer through fasting, through reading the Word of God, pleading the blood over your family and over the church, amen? By praying against spiritual darkness, by weeping between the porch and the altar, by weeping over your city, by travailing for revival, amen? The Bible says uh, that God declared, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, I'm going to hear from heaven. I'll heal their land. I'm going to come in. They're going to give me permission. They're going to open up an avenue and a pathway. It's amazing. I don't know if any of you ever read that that old book, uh, This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Very interesting book that illustrates what happens in the spirit realm when people come into an area that are serious about revival, that are serious about deliverance, that are serious about a move of God. And there is a spiritual battle that is launched. Amen? Praise the Lord. And so we have to understand there is a spiritual battle. Now let's look at uh, Satan's abilities. Paul is admonishing the church. And his admonitions indicate that Satan is a strong enemy that he is a strong enemy and that we have to have the power of God to be able to stand against him. I'm going to tell you right now, we're helpless without prayer. How good our music is. How good we think our preaching. How nice we like our church. How much we like our church and love each We are powerless without prayer. We cannot stand against the enemy. Don't underestimate the power of the devil. The Bible compares him to a lion. Another place describes him as a dragon. It's not just for fun so we can have like illustrative sermons for children. Amen. The book of Job tells us that what Satan's power can do to a man's body, to his home, to his wealth, and to his friends, Satan has power. Jesus calls Satan the thief that comes to steal and kill and to destroy. And not only is Satan strong, but he's also wise. And very subtle. Amen? Are you with me? The fact that Paul uses the word wrestle 
we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He uses the word wrestle to indicate that each and every one of us are involved in a hand-to-hand battle with the enemy. And we're not mere spectators in this game. Not like we come in and say, Ooh, I hope Pastor Brown's been praying this week. Lord, watch him. He's going to get up behind that pulpit and do battle with the devil. Mm-mm-mm. Ooh, did you hear what he just said? He gave the devil a black eye. That was awesome. Let's give him a golf clap now. No, we wrestle. It's hand-to-hand combat for all of us. We're all in this battle. Amen? Amen. If you, if you don't realize that, you're either a spiritual baby or you're half backslid and the devil's just beating up on you and you don't even know it. Amen? There is spiritual warfare and it is a hand-to-hand battle in terms of spiritual warfare. And Satan wants to use our external enemy. What is that? The world to defeat us. The world to entice us. The world to tempt us. The world to distract us. The world to confuse us. The system of this world, the appeal and the temptations of this world to defeat us. That's his external tool, but he's also got an internal tool called our flesh that he's trying to use against us to defeat us. So our main enemy is the devil, but he uses the world and our flesh to try to defeat our faith and to destroy us. So before we go any further, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to recognize that this spiritual warfare is real and your enemy is formidable. Amen? That's why he instructs us to put on our equipment. Make sure that we're equipped for spiritual battle because if you don't have your equipment, you're going to be in trouble. Read this real quickly. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparedness or preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let me tell you folks something that if you ignore this right here and the principles behind this illustration of, of uh, armor, then you will be vulnerable against the enemy. I don't care how much you know, how much you think you know, how strong-willed you are, if you don't take what God has provided for you to be able to stand against the enemy, having done all to stand, then you will be defeated. Amen? We're fighting enemies in the spirit world, so we need special equipment both for offense and for defense. God has provided the whole armor. It says, take unto you the whole armor. And so we shouldn't omit any of it. Say, well, I want the sword, but I'm tired. I want the breastplate, but I don't want any truth. Amen. You take the whole armor of God. Satan is looking for unguarded areas where he can get a little hit in on us, establish a beachhead against us. So here, here we go. The first is 
Verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth, the girdle belt, if you would, of truth. And we know John 8.44 tells us that Satan is a liar. That's his character. He can't tell the truth. Standing on a stack of Bibles, looking in the face of the Lord Jesus. He's a liar. Murderer from the beginning. He bides not in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he speaketh, he speaketh a lie, for he is a liar and the father of it. But a believer whose life is controlled by truth will defeat the liar. The girdle or the belt is what holds the other part of the armor together. And if you don't have it, everything will come disconnected or be loose and won't be uh, attached, be flopping all over, be unwieldy. It is the girdle that keeps the sword in place, that keeps the breastplate in place, that keeps the armor on the person. And truth is the integrating force in the life of a victorious Christian. A man and a woman of integrity with a clear conscience can face the enemy without fear. But when we begin to shade the truth, tell little white lies, mislead people, cover up and hide things, then we become very, very, very vulnerable to the enemy. Can I get an amen? People who get wrapped up in addictions, destroyed in body and spirit by the enemy, it usually starts or restarts in their life because they have a little secret error. That is, maybe not a direct lie, but it's hidden. It's not truth. It's deception. And that becomes the way in which sin can begin to control their life. So if you want to beat the devil, speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Let your life be open and clear. Let your conscience be clear before the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray right now and ask God for the help. Lord Jesus, let us be pure and right before you, Lord Jesus. Let us be full of truth, Lord God, in the inward parts. Hallelujah. So that we can stand against the enemy. Hallelujah. The next part of the armor is... uh, and your loins are girt with truth and you've got on the breastplate of righteousness that protects your vital organs, your heart, your lungs, and so forth. This piece of armor covers, covers the body from the neck to the waist, both front and back. It symbolizes the believer's righteousness in Christ as well as his righteous life in Christ. You say, what's the difference? The difference is our righteousness in Christ is what has been imputed unto us. What we received from God when we accepted His righteousness, right? But the righteousness in our life is what is imparted to us as we grow as a Christian and seek to live right before God. So one of it comes from God directly. The other one comes from us laboring together with Him in the process of sanctification. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Amen? And the kind of life that you and I live either fortifies Satan's attacks against him, against us, or fortifies us against Satan's attacks or makes it easier for him to defeat us. Right? If I'm living right, amen, 
it's a lot more difficult for the enemy to defeat. If I am allowing things in my life, a lifestyle that's unrighteous, I'm not doing the right thing and obeying God, I'm giving the accuser room to beat me up really bad and make me feel defeated. The breastplate of righteousness protects me against the enemy. As Dr. Laura says, now go do the right thing. Amen. Verse 15, the shoes of the gospel, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The verse of scripture says, stand therefore, having done all to stand. If you're going to stand, then you need the shoes of the gospel. And uh, we must be at peace with God and with each other if we're going to defeat the devil, the preparation, the gospel of peace, at peace with one another. Um, but we also must be prepared each day to share the gospel of peace in a lost world. Let me just say that the most victorious Christian is a Christian who is sharing his faith with someone else. Mm -hmm. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. The point is, if I got my light out and I'm letting it shine, then I know it's still lit. If I hide it under a bush, I don't know what's happening under there. Amen? The most victorious Christians are Christians who are sharing the gospel and witnessing what the Lord has done for them. The shield of faith, verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, whereby we can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. A shield, a shield was something that a soldier would hold before him, and it protected him from spears and arrows, and fiery darts. And uh, the edges of the shields were made so that an entire line of soldiers could interlock their shields. Anybody ever seen this before? Where back in the old day in the battles, they would lock shields together, these big, long shields. And they could march into the enemy like a solid wall. Uh, anybody ever seen the films or anything like that where they would lock them together in medieval times? This is suggesting that we as Christians are not in the battle alone, but we're with one another. Amen? Hallelujah. And it says the shield of faith. I've wondered before, is that talking about a shield made out of faith or a shield that protects our faith? I think it's both. Because our faith is what protects our faith. Amen? The faith mentioned here is not talking about the faith that we were saved by, but it's it's talking about a trust in the promises and the power of God. I believe God. That's whenever the enemy sends a thought of discouragement, we put up the shield and says, I don't understand it, but I believe God. I don't know why this is happening in my life, but I believe God. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of merit to your argument, Satan, but I believe God. Amen. I just believe God has my best interest at heart. I believe in His promises and I believe in His power. I believe what He can do if He chooses to do. And Satan shoots fiery darts at our hearts and minds, lies, blasphemous thoughts against God, hateful thoughts about others, doubts, and a burning desire for sin. These are what Satan shoots into our heart, into our mind, and into our emotions. That's why you've got to have the shield of faith, which says, I don't know what's happening, but I believe God. 
I don't know what's going on, but I believe God. I don't know why this temptation's coming my way, but I believe in the power and in the promises of God. I believe God, and it will quench and put out the fire. Amen? Hallelujah. Amen. Next is the helmet of salvation, verse 17. I'm wrapping it up here. The helmet protects the mind. Satan wants to attack the mind. That's how he defeated Eve, playing mind tricks. So the helmet refers to our mind being controlled by God. When God controls the mind, Satan cannot lead the believer astray. Amen? So how in the world do I put on my helmet? How do I put on my helmet? How do I put on my helmet? How do I get God to control my mind? How do I let my thoughts be controlled by God? Word of God. Obviously, I'm not indicating that you literally put a hard shell Bible in your head. But I'm indicating that you've got to get the Word of God into your brain so that your thoughts are controlled by God. You know what? If I'm reading my Bible, I think a lot differently than when I'm 